welcome to today's podcast. We have Jeff Bach, CEO of Imagine360, and Rob Gelb, CEO of Valence Health, two leading cost containment solution providers in the self-insured employer space. So I'm very excited to hear their perspectives and learn from it, and you're going to love it too. This program is brought to you by the Healthcare Administrators Association, HCAA. For over 40 years, HCAA has supported third-party administrators and the self-insured employer industry through educational opportunities from leading industry experts. For information on joining HCAA, please visit our website, hcaa.org. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar, and I'm on a mission to bring value to the healthcare industry through improved transparency. And my goal from this podcast is to give you one aha moment that you can implement in your business, whether you're a TPA, broker, or an employer. In my day job, I run a company called Zaki Point Health that helps self-insured employers and their employees find meaning from their healthcare data and price transparency. Please like or share this podcast on your favorite podcasting tool so we can bring together a community of like-minded professionals. Before we begin, we would like to bring you a word from our sponsors, Walmart Health Virtual Care. Walmart Health Virtual Care, formerly known as MeMD, offers a comprehensive telehealth solution that gives brokers the virtual healthcare options their clients want and need. With on-demand online care for common illnesses and injuries, primary care and behavioral health issues, Walmart Health Virtual Care has one of the most flexible platforms on the market, which can be customized to the needs and budget of any group. Today, on our podcast, you will learn what are the different ways employers can contain costs? What are the different approaches these two organizations are taking towards cost containment? What is the role of data and technology to actually deliver this kind of cost containment? And what has worked in managing risks, costs, and why? And perhaps what will actually happen post price transparency? What is the future of cost containment? So let's dig in. I'm super excited to have Jeff Bach and Rob Gelb here. Actually, why don't I have the two of you in your own words, tell us why our listeners should listen to you about this topic of cost containment. Rob, why don't you go first? Ramesh, first of all, thank you. And Jeff, it's great to see you. We've spoken, as you know. Um, I'm Rob Gelb, I'm the CEO of Valence. Why am I relevant? Why should they want to tune in? Well, we operate what we call a healthcare ecosystem optimization platform that helps align the parties in self-insurance to balance the equation that they're trying to solve for when it comes to quality utilization and cost. And I think they're going to learn some pretty cool things that are available to them, some through us, some that are just organically happening in the space. And I'm delighted to be a part of the conversation as well as the transformation of this healthcare space. Uh, Jeff Back, president and CEO of Imagine360. Delighted to be here with Rob and sharing the stage and getting into some of the meat here on what could really move the needle for healthcare, particularly for self-funded employers. And Ramesh, appreciate you reaching out and thank you for the invitation. Imagine 360, simply put, is a company that levels the playing field for self-funded employers who aren't necessarily healthcare experts. And our program, our policy, the reason we are is we can save 20, 30% off of what you're currently spending. And we think we can do it in a diligent way and in a meaningful way so that savings is retained. And five years from now, you're not seeing 
significant increases as a self-funded employer. So everything we do puts that self-funded employer and their employees right in the middle of our debate table and we advocate for them. They're our key client. Jeff, as you mentioned, the savings and how important that is to your offering. Why don't you paint a picture for us? What are the different ways employers can contain costs and perhaps touch on which one of those you are helping employers with? We're a big fan of employers who embrace and move into self-funding using ERISA as a policy form to do that. And it gives them tax advantages that they don't have if they're in the fully insured space. It enables them to manufacture their own plan document in terms of what they're going to cover and what they're not going to cover. And it really puts them in the driver's seat in terms of where they can begin finding savings. And the notion of buying a bundle or buying a package from the Blues, United, Signa, or Aetna is a notion that just is expensive. And so looking at cost containment capabilities, whether that's reference-based pricing, direct contracting, all those things matter. And most of our employers who've been at this for two or three years have pulled a lot of levers from the prescription benefit manager plan to using stop loss and a whole bunch of other things that really move the needle. Rob, how about you? What are some of the ways self-insured employers can contain costs? I think Jeff has started a really nice trend here. And, and I do think it goes back to his opening salvo, which is employers are not necessarily experts, the ones that are kind of involved in these buying decisions. And so I think they need to, at some level, find ways to get educated and surround themselves with folks that are educated about options like self-insurance and ERISA-based plans. They need to be open to the idea that they need to change some things. I think there's a change mindset that is needed that we're starting to see emerge a little bit more. It seemed to stagnate for a while. People were very comfortable to Jeff's point about allowing the traditional BUCA, right? The blues and the, and the relateds that fall into that category of that acronym, just kind of drive the price up. There's a, we use the words, I used it in my opening. I'll use it here again, alignment and balance. There's a misalignment of incentives with the way that the Bugas design their networks. There's a, an expectation that in any willing provider network that has broad coverage is, is good for my employees. The yes and to that is maybe <laughs> from a coverage perspective, I don't know that they're measuring quality when they're building these networks. That remains to be seen. We're not quite sure that when they negotiate rates that they're negotiating effectively to a baseline of costs versus a potential discount from charges that are inflated or unnecessary or erroneously part of the claim. There's this alignment concept and balance concept. So aligning means getting all the parties together. So the parties that are to the claim are the payer, the provider, and the patient. And getting them all to understand upfront and throughout the process what their responsibility and obligation is going to look like. And then when you balance this equation of quality, advocacy, and cost and get all of those three parties kind of thinking and understanding what their role is in that equation, that's really for us how we're looking at cost containment options. And that's when you can explore the what, right? So is it a reference-based type approach? And so is using a baseline to measure spend against. It's cost-based versus charge-based. Do you incorporate some sort of navigation 
and direction of care. Jeff mentioned bundles. I think it's a tremendous idea what you talked about there is being able to get an all-inclusive and you know what your fee is, you know what the outcome is supposed to look like, you know where you're going and center of excellence type of design. So I think those are the types of things that when we look at the future, it starts with the employer being willing to be vulnerable, that they don't have the answers and that they need to make some changes and they're willing to make changes in the spirit of the member, their employees to do what's right. So Rob, which one of those services do you provide? We're unique. I hate using that word, but it's the only way to describe sometimes. We're different. We're unique. We're somewhat exclusive in the sense that we offer all of it. So we've designed a solution as a platform that becomes a full Buka replacement option. Network, navigation, member service tools, contracted and non-contracted networks, negotiation, out-of-network spend negotiation, clean claim review in the form of a bill review for even in-network claims, and then post-PPO application prepayment review of claims. And so we offer all of that coupled with point solutions and utilization disease and case management to help support the member throughout their journey when they're dealing with conditions or situations that require an advocate from a nursing perspective. Jeff, maybe if you can fill in the blanks from your perspective, which services are you providing when it comes to cost containment and the ones that you're not, perhaps why not? So our solution is we offer the, the administrative backbone that enables an employer to provide their self-funded program. So all the transactions and interactions with the member, we provide a stop loss captive risk bearing solution that enables them to move from a fully insured program to a self-funded program. And we offer specific and aggregate coverage. And that's kind of table stakes that kind of gets you in the game. The real value driver for us is the way in which we engage with the members. And when they utilize a hospital system for care, how we reimburse that hospital. I think Rob said it a few times, right? In some cases, there's very high charges. It's very confusing. There's the charge master, there's build charges. We don't really focus on that. What we focus on is a reference point, which is Medicare or the actual cost to deliver the service, which is published by every hospital. It's it's readily available. And we take the actual cost or Medicare, which we feel is a very fair starting point for a reimbursement. And we add a a fair margin. It's either 12% above their actual cost or Medicare plus 20% more. And we take the higher of those two reimbursement philosophies and we pay that and we pay it quickly and accurately to the hospital facility. We think that's the right methodology that drives a wedge between annual inflation, build charges, which are very hard to understand. And it generally winds up saving 20 to 30% of total cost for an employer uh, over the course of a year. That's a lot of found money. You can put to good work. So That's what we do. We have a lot of other things that support that employer in that journey. And once they're there, but at a macro level, that's where we show up. So let's maybe start. I think now that we understand the context, have we squeezed the juice out of this? Are we looking at 20, 30% with this whole price transparency regulation 
do we anticipate this coming down further? What we pay the provider? Maybe let's talk a little bit more about this payments to the provider first. I'll start, Jeff. Kind of bolt on and tell me what you think. I think, let me take a step back, Ramesh. If we're only talking about the payment, if we're only talking about the cost, we're missing something in the discussion. There's got to be more than just an individual claim that got cut by 60%. The mm -hmm. conversation has to evolve around the total cost of care and some of the other things that really should be done to benefit the member and just point, place the member first in the equation. And so are they getting quality care? And quality can be a very subjective thing. That in itself could be a, a podcast about how do you really measure what is quality, right? So we won't go there, but there are metrics that are relatively recognized depending on who's putting the material together, that there's a, a way of measuring quality. So you want to measure quality and then you want to measure reasonable cost and reasonable reimbursement. And along that continuum, you want to keep all the parties that are affected by those decisions and those choices involved and informed. And so in our world, how that manifests as an example. If we open up a new non-contracted network model, typically referred to as reference-based pricing, we don't use that name within our environment, but sometimes it's easier for people to understand what we're referring to. So non-contracted network. We enable that. We have a navigation group that is pre-calling, pre-service calling for members and identifying providers through quality metrics that would be accepting of the reimbursement levels that the plan has designated for their members and their program. And so we designate them as valence friendly. These are providers that may not want to do a contract with us, but have accepted the terms and conditions to eliminate friction or abrasion to the member or the plan with balance billing and other forms of coming back at you, so to speak. And so that's how we manifest this idea of keeping the parties aligned and balancing the equation. So we kind of live that through the model we've designed. It's not for everybody. It's not how everybody sees the world. We get that. And we're not trying to change the world. We're just trying to solve problems for clients that see it the way we see it, right? And then bring more of those along. We use an analogy in our business that if you think of Wayne Gretzky, if you know the great one, he used to use a phrase of where everybody skates to where the puck is, he's going to skate to where the puck's going to be. And so we've kind of translated that to, we try and help and work with our clients to understand where we think healthcare is going to be. And then we bring the customer there and the member there with us. And so getting to your transparency question, it's TIC or some of the stuff going on going to be transformative. It has to be. What it looks like today, what it looks like five years from now, what it looks like 10 years from now, it'll be iterative, transformative. But we're going to go there. And I think groups like Jeff's and ours are helping to shape that path and carve that path of leveraging the right way to look at transparency, cost data, and information sharing to make better decisions for the plan in the member. So then what would be different from, let's say, reference-based price here? So what are, when you say, look at the totality here, mm -hmm. uh, what do you imagine to be a better way of tackling this in the future? So I'm never going to say it's better. Right. I'm going to say we do it differently. And if you subscribe to the way that we're doing it differently, then maybe it helps you. Right. Economics are a big part of that. We have a methodology that deploys not just Medicare. It also looks at UCR. It also looks at paid claim data. It looks at 
other forms of data that are published now through groups like Healthcare Blue Book, Quantrose, Turquoise Health is a big partner of ours right now. And it massages through an algorithm what a reasonable range of reimbursement would look like if there's no contract. Um, we also scrape and do clean claim review. So in addition to determining what services and a price point for those services looks like, we also determine what should or shouldn't have even been on the claim and built. And so those two factors come together and then we communicate and speak with the provider, typically getting a sign off about 50% of the time on all of those factors to eliminate the abrasion that accompanies it. So that's our methodology. Again, it's different. We call it Valence Market Sensitive Repricing. It is something that is deployed regionally. Uh, so we utilize local, local data sets, not just a national data set where we can. Jeff, you guys are taking a different approach. How is that working? What are your views on Rob's approach here? Listen, Rob's approach is a really good starting point for making sure that, right, first, there's nothing errant on that hospital invoice. And two, the fact that there's a lot more data today and a lot more transparent reimbursement data to help inform what might the uh, provider or facility accept based on past history, and then being proactive, right? Being proactive around negotiating a reasonable endpoint or educating the member that this is a place to go where you have the best odds of getting quality care and it being accepted. We adhere to that. That is part of our model as well. I think what transparency and some of the requirements now that are required, what it's doing is it's creating a conversation and it's enabling employers to ask why. Why is it that I'm paying 20 or 30% more than say another health insurance company? Or why is it that somebody who is 64 is paying three times as much as somebody who's 65 and in Medicare at the exact same facility with the same provider for the same service. And there's a bit of fairness doctrine here where it's not right that there's that much differentiation in terms of cost. And what we have found, and this is probably not going to be a huge surprise, is people who do services repetitively and do them well, they actually charge less. Mm -hmm. And so quality and cost oftentimes are, are similar or in parallel. Believe it or not, we find in our data that facilities that do things infrequently with low quality oftentimes are the most expensive. The problem is you have an employee who's a bit in the dark and whether it's Rob's navigation approach or data approach or our advocacy where we handhold that member to say, you have three hospitals in your backyard. Hospital A is $10,000 for the procedure. Hospital B is 20 and hospital C is 30. If an employer knew that their employee was going to be making a 10 or $20,000 decision tomorrow in terms of where they accessed, they take it a lot more seriously, but it's so opaque and so difficult to get underneath that. And so here's what our data has said, right, wrong, or different. And we are an end of probably uh, several billion dollars of savings and a couple million transactions. There is not a direct correlation between us reimbursing a higher percentage of Medicare and that provider accepting. 
in our data set, if we went Medicare plus 50 versus Medicare plus 20, there is no direct correlation between a higher acceptance rate. So we kind of stick with our starting point and then we use our team's negotiation skill sets and then we use other playbooks to make sure that the saving sticks. Mm, I like that. Bolton on, Jeff, tell me if you agree with this. The cost portion of low quality care manifests not just in the individual episodic cost, but in things like readmission rates and having to do more work again and getting billed for it. So there are a lot of factors, hygiene factors tied to this. I like what you said there a lot. So I think uh, we talked a little bit about this regulation. It's going to start a conversation. Where are you seeing this? And I would suspect at the same time, there's going to be resistance, whether it's the providers, they haven't really put up these machine-readable files as much as they were supposed to. They're going to hide it. Buka carriers who traditionally relied on saying, look, I have huge discounts and whatnot, so you should not be using anything else, whether it's RBP, direct contracts or whatnot. How are we going to see these opposing forces of hospitals and Buka carriers take this conversation to the next level? What sort of force you think you need to apply or what kind of resistance are we going to anticipate from Buka carriers? Well, there's a fair amount of chatter, as you can imagine, and really the vortex of where this kind of shows up is with your local insurance broker, right? Your trusted advisor, and that trusted advisor has been doing things a certain way. Let's face it, what Rob and I are doing, while it's innovative, it's different, and it's change, and change is hard. And so there are a lot of producers who may investigate what we're doing, but may not be all in and may want to use it from a defensive posture. But you find that when an employer begins to hear about some of these new innovative things that save real money, the first thing they ask is, why haven't I seen this before? And why am I not in a decision around using this or using that? Going back and negotiating down from 15 or 20% to 10 from a renewal perspective and staying with the same solution is no longer an option. At least that Rob and I hope that this creates that conversation, but there's a lot of entrenchment. There's a lot of momentum. As I said earlier, change is hard, whether you're a broker or leading a company's HR department and having to think through, how do I educate my employees on this model shift? And is it going to work both from a savings perspective, but also from an acceptance perspective because every employer, right, they will sacrifice saving more money if they don't put their employees in harm's way. So it's our job as innovators to make sure that the employee has their back covered and that when they make this change, it's one that they can understand that actually works, right? And then that they get the advocacy and support they need for it to perpetuate into many, many years in front of us. And if you don't do that, it's the fastest way. Lack of education with employees, disconnects with HR is the fastest way for any of our innovative solutions to be shelved only to go back to the old way of doing things. And so it's a ton of education and really that's the bedrock of change. hundred percent. In fact, I think 
the first question I said, employers need to get educated and get comfortable with the idea that they need to be open to change. And I, I think Jeff perfectly with his narrative there. Um, so I don't really have anything to add to that other than I agree. I would say that culture, because you and I talked a little bit about this, Ramesh, and I know we're about 20 minutes in and I'm first talking about it now, but you know, culture is one of those things and Jeff knows this too, we spoke about it. We lead with culture. So the how we do things as a business is driven by how we behave as a company. And that's almost more important than what we do. And so we live a culture of innovation as a business. We call it the circle of innovation. It starts with simplifying the complex. I think Jeff would agree. This healthcare industry is a complex set of pipes and wires that are not connected, not aggregated well. They don't play nice together, right? So that's our simplify the complex. That's our job. Help the member navigate. We then move to the get comfortable being uncomfortable. So we as a culture have embraced the idea that this industry that we operate in, our business that operates inside the space, working with peers and competitors like Jeff's organization, we have to get comfortable with the idea that what we did yesterday is potentially not what we're going to be doing next week. And whether it's a process or it's a change in rules, it's an automation change, we have to get comfortable with the idea that we need to be agile as a business. That then leads to, and Jeff called it broken glass, I call it spilled milk or broken glass, we're going to get things right and we're also going to get things wrong. And that's what learning is about, right? If you learned how to ride a bike without training wheels, you skinned your knee, right? But then you got up and tried it again and you learned how to balance on two wheels. And so it's kind of the same concept as we embrace the idea of empowerment and engagement and making mistakes. And then the last piece of this is the whole idea of yes and, which is a, a theory of improvisation, which I think I shared with both of you. And in improvisation, you don't use words like no butter, however, because they stop the conversation. And yes, and continues the conversation. It gets people thinking and exploring and ideating and getting creative and innovating. And when you do that, and you do that with internally, we also do that with our customers and our business partners and even our peers in the industry sometimes. We'll have a great conversation about how we look at it. We can have different views on something and still end up in a good place in a conversation because we learn something from each other. And we use yes, and as the vehicle to do that. So... That is something that is important to us. I think that's a, that's a great point you've made overall, above and beyond the technical aspects. How do you position, whether it's your culture, the way you approach? I mean, healthcare is such a big industry, so many entrenched approaches. So, changing the minds and the hearts, you kind of really have to take mm-hmm. a look, elaborate. And so, I like the iterative aspect that you mentioned. I think both of you have talked about the advocacy, navigation, education in different ways, different words. Maybe if both of you could share specific examples of ways you've done this and worked well that you imagine doing more of. Sure. I think a good example for us is a company like Hendry Marine. They've been a client now for going on four or five years. Prior to us and getting involved, they were spending about double what they were spending in terms of their total cost of care. We came in and created about a net savings of $3 million in the first year. That's kind of persisted. That's kind of held serve, so to speak, of $3 million annually thereafter. But what really was fascinating was we were kind of the tip of the spear. We got things started. They opened their eyes up and said, well, 
if we can do this here, what else can we do to unpack what we're spending at our healthcare? And so to fast forward, today they have a prescription benefit plan, which is completely transparent. It's only fee-based. They get the benefit of their own rebates. If there are rebates for certain drugs, they get any ingredient cost fees, if there are any of those. And there's these emerging companies that are now not just in what we're doing with provider reimbursement, but what you're doing with, with prescriptions. Another great example, they took the savings that we generated and they created a virtual primary care clinic that's literally on a bus and the bus shows up every Monday and anybody in the office can come out and access virtual primary care. And that serves a lot of different potential issues that employees face. Sniffles and colds, yeah, you bet. But is somebody still adhering right to their drug regimen if they're a diabetic? Or are they appropriately recovering from any type of surgery for ortho-related? And really, behavioral health is so under served right now and utilized, and we're seeing a tremendous amount of need for that. And so they have a dedicated group of doctors in the psychology field that are available for their employees, and they pay for it directly. So what we thought, right, was the the end-all and be-all really just became the catalyst for a lot of other change that this firm has taken on. And the HR person went from being kind of a spreadsheet decipherer, right? And I want to save an extra 5%. They're as knowledgeable as their benefits broker. They're like a consultant unto themselves. And what's ironic about it is now that same HR person, they're giving seminars to other employers about what they did and why it worked. And they're passionate about it. I mean, they're not going back ever. So it's just watching that transformation for us. You know, we have these HR heroes that we call them that have embraced a change model. We're part of it. We're not the only solution, but we're a big part of it. It's just fascinating to see what they can do and just how much they can save and gain. That's an awesome story. And I would say that we have throughout our business, similar types of stories of significant change and impact, right? So whether it's implementing a navigation program for an employer of 1500 lives And they were struggling with their BUCA plan. They didn't want to make a change with the network. So they really just asked us to get to the front end and try and direct better care and showing impact that was measurable, that was quantifiable, that had an ROI to it. We were able to do that. We have programs that we've enabled 200 life group to say 1600 life group I could think of where they're using navigation and a narrow network where they saved over 40% and took their overall medical spend and they took their average spend per member down from, I think it was $10,000 to near $7,000. And so these are real dollars and these are people impact. But to Jeff's point, I think the bigger impact is they will use our phrases of, we spilled some milk on that, but we tried it and let's keep trying. Or yes, and what if we tried this? And so What it comes back down to is, for us at least, is when they embrace our culture, it's more than just what we did for the program with dollars and cents. It's a mindset shift that allows them to think differently about the possibilities of what change and innovation can do for them and their members and their employees. I think Jeff was saying the same thing. 
and I agree with him 100%, there's a cultural piece that must be coming out of Imagine 360 that's doing that. We have a phrase, we use it, we live it. It's very embedded. We use it with our customers. We lead every sales presentation to a new customer with this, hey, let's, let's just start with the idea of this is our culture. And if it's not for you, then we're not for you. We're okay with that because we don't want to have friction in a relationship. We want to have innovation and trust. And so that's the biggest reward is watching these customer varying employers, TPAs, stop loss carriers, MGUs, whoever we're working with. When they embrace this spilled milk, yes, and mentality, they begin to change and explore the possibility of what they can achieve. Yeah. We could be obviously talking about a whole variety of these case studies or even topics. A few things that came to my mind. What is the role of data in whatever you're doing across the business for cost containment? I'll start on that one. I'll kind of let Jeff take the lead and, and do the heavy lifting on some of these. Data is the fuel, right? Data is the engine. It's everything is driven by not just how much data you have, but what the data is and how you then take it and transform it into something that's actionable. We use data in a way where we'd say it's actionable analytics. It's our brand promises to engage early and often for smarter, better, faster healthcare. That engage early and often is all predicated in the idea that if we use data smartly, real time, and allow it to kind of guide us to where the pain shows up and exists, we're going to solve problems before they become big problems. And so for us, data is everything. And it's disparate sources. It's our own data. It's ingested data. It's purchased data. It's curated data. I mean, you name it. It's structured data. It's unstructured data. It sits in our data warehouse, right? So, and we use it in a variety of ways. We have an analytics team. We have an informatics team. They're constantly exploring. It helps us create new product derivatives that data helps us explore where pain exists and point solutions need to be developed to create a solution for an emerging pain point in someone's program. So I'll stop there for a second. Jeff, sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, you hit it. Data is a huge driver of a lot of decisions that we all make, right? And the playbooks we put together that inform what actions to take under what circumstance we're dealing with. And it all gets back to this constant balance of savings and then employee or member abrasion or friction. It's almost like, right, we're swimming in it. And there's so much information and data that you really need to simplify it and then use the data you have to give the employees and the employer the best odds of where they can get first quality care, right? So we use a lot to determine provider A versus provider B and who's going to have a better outcome, at least based on the history. Number two, it's the acceptability of what we do and how we reimburse. And so again, it's pretty simple, red, yellow, green. Green gets the go, they're quality and they're highly accepting of our reimbursement philosophy and red, they're not. And so while we have a ton of data, it also gets down to simplifying so that it's easy to consume and digest and it makes it easy for employees to to navigate themselves if they want to navigate and don't use us. If they use us, we use the same data that they're looking at. It's a tremendous time to be in this industry because more of this data is becoming available and the innovators and the smart money continues to use that data to improve their decision-making and improve the likelihood that savings that have been gained will stick. As you kind of look at the 
cost containment industry and how you've put various pieces together. Are you seeing consolidation of these services programs with the reference-based price, with direct contracting, with navigation? But what are you seeing happen and how have you guys effectively helped customers by utilizing this trend or not? You want to go, Jeff? You want me to go? Go ahead. Go ahead, please. So, consolidation, I'm going to supplement that word and call it the natural evolution of what has to happen. If you watch business cycles, they go like this, right? So you have startups and new businesses and they get up off the ground and some fail and some succeed. And then somebody says, wait a minute, we need to consolidate. Or you end up with, you know, the TPA space is a good example of a space that is evolving, consolidating, if you will, right? Why? A lot of reasons probably underneath that. There's investment money being placed into the market, seeing TPAs as an opportunity to potentially innovate them, create technology that drives efficiency and economies of scale, something you can't do as a 6,500-life TPA, a 2,500-life TPA. When you start to aggregate that scale, maybe there's a benefit to doing that. I think consolidation is good. It's a survival of the fittest mentality that exists in every environment. And so that's what you're seeing, I think. I think it's going to continue for a while, personally. It's just my personal. I'm not speaking on behalf of Valens corporately. I'm saying my personal opinion, observation as a business person would be it's going to happen and it needs to. I think it's a natural progression on life cycle. Companies ebb and flow and reach the end. And then somebody picks it up or says, hey, you don't deserve being here anymore. Right? It's extinction. So that'll happen too. But I think it's going to continue to happen. I think data and this term, big data, whatever you want to define it as, and the need to have more data. You know, we have this vociferous appetite as businesses, more data, more data, more data. I think Jeff talked about it. You know, having all that data doesn't mean anything if you don't know how to use it and turn it into information that's actionable. So, but I think data is going to be another factor in who consolidates and what types of segments of the market consolidate. Because people are going to start to think the more that they have this big data and these sets of data, they can do more for less and create efficiency. So I'll stop there to, to leave something on the bone for Jeff. So there's two types of consolidation and compression that we're seeing. One, I think, is normal and natural, and that is the ability to take a lot of these point solutions and innovators that are out there and bring it together under a new bundle, putting those pieces together for the betterment and the savings for an employer. Unfortunately, there's a consolidation that's happening in the industry, which is not market favorable, and that's provider consolidation. And the number of hospital systems that have combined or been acquired and coming together, there's another big announcement just today of another one that came together, a pretty big system. And there's a direct correlation between increase in cost and the smaller number of competing hospital systems in a given market. And it doesn't take you too long to Google this. And you look at a place like Indiana and the government finally stepped in and said, you guys, just your margins are too high. We're paying too much for care. The consolidation that's happening in places like Indianapolis, it's, it's anti-competitive. So they put a moratorium in terms of they can't increase their cost for the next five years. And they think that's the length of time it's going to take for the market and the inflation rate to catch up to where these guys have been charging. And I think the data point, we work with somebody called Dr. Michael Hicks. He does a lot of podcasts for us. He's a really insightful guy. He'll be the first to tell you that 
their per employee profit, I think it's University of Indiana hospital system, was $33,000 a year. It's a big number. It's a lot of money. And so when we come in, I keep focusing on the hospital reimbursement side of this and what we do and how we do it. But sometimes a blunt object is needed. And sometimes you have to start where you see the most expensive or excessive costs. And this is not unique just to Indiana. I mean, there are other markets where there was a study, the RAND study that came out, which shows just about every single market and most systems, what they charge. And for outpatient services, some people are charging 1,000% of Medicare, 10 times, inpatient, five times. And there's not a relativity. You can't buy it because it's so expensive. But if the quality showed up, you kind of hold your nose and say, all right, this is the best quality, but it's not. That's an area where consolidation may be hurting competitiveness. And Indiana's taken a pretty draconian approach. So I guess the different levels of this consolidation can negatively impact. How about from a positive way? I think, Rob, you were alluding to more of the consolidation within the solutions and innovations. Is it helping the employer? And how is it helping them now? Well, time's going to tell, right? Time is the source of of all truth. So you got to let things kind of evolve and see what you think is working today, two years from now, may or may not be. But I think to Jeff's point, consolidation eliminates potentially competition. And when competition is not there, then the supply side of economics, right, kind of tips the scale of where pricing is going to go. And so that I see happening on the provider side. I think that's well stated what Jeff said there. I think there's a different type of consolidation that's more aggregation. And Jeff was beginning to allude to this, which is point solutions getting brought together. You know, you could call that consolidation, but really what you have is someone like us, for example, we've done five acquisitions over the course of the last three years. And we've identified point solutions we felt we needed to own to be able to kind of fill the gap of direct connect and simplifying a process for an employer by having the thread pull all the way through to the end. And so whether it was buying a bill review business or buying a case management business or finding a point solution in particular chronic condition area, we went and found things that made sense for us. That consolidation, we think that's more aggregation of creating a complete solution set, but you're seeing some of that. I think you're seeing some of that too. That's a good way to put the two different things. Yeah. Well, this has been kind of really helpful conversation on touching various aspects of cost containment. The last question here, if you're a TP out there, broker listening to this, what are the things you would suggest in order for the employers to benefit from your innovation, your approach, your services? What should they be taking away from this and kind of leveraging this? I like the mindset, right? of kind of crawl, then walk, then run, as it relates to these things we've been talking about. And an educated consumer can be a very dangerous one. And so asking about what if we looked at this or what if we tried that and getting educated on what some of these other capabilities and solutions are and tying that to an ROI or a savings that's tangible, it's meaningful. Like you could actually put a number on it where you mean, if we do this, we can save $2,000 per employee per year. Hey, that's meaningful. That could go a long way in terms of how we recruit new associates to the firm or what we can do to retain folks that we don't want to lose. And 
the notion of taking $2,000 a year and reinvesting it in something else that the business could use or need, it's just like, I think being a good custodian of your expense dollars and an employer, they're so good at their business and they spend so much time negotiating with their vendors and they know their profit margins like nobody else. But then you get a line item for $10,000 an employee and it's just like, it's a blank check. And so I think getting into the conversation, taking a step and getting some of this benefit will light a fire. And all of a sudden you go from feeling powerless to powerful and controlling your future destiny around a very important employee satisfaction component, right? The quality of your health plan, care delivery. You feel good because you're giving your employees something they can use for their wellness and for their family's wellness. And so our culture is, hey, we feel like we're on the right side of this thing. Our employees are making a difference and these savings are meaningful and it's going to keep a lot of these employers in business and growing and and that feels good. So I think it comes down to just asking the, the what if question. And with that comes, I think, a lot of potential. Yeah, I say be curious, be honest and be open. Be curious about and explore what's out there. Ask questions. Consult with more than just one trusted advisor. Ask other people what they're doing. Just talk to your peers. I mean, I got to tell you, I had a great conversation with Jeff. We're peers in the space. We compete for business at times, although we came to realize we don't overlap too often in the marketplace. But we learned, I learned from the conversation, made me think differently about a couple of things that we're doing. I think you need to be honest then and, and recognize that you don't have all the answers as an employer. You don't really know what you don't know. And you also have to be honest about what you do know and what's not working. And don't ignore it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't just let it go on forever saying, well, that's just the way it is. Like, be honest and, and try and find solutions. And then be open to the possibility of change. And Jeff said it three or four times, and I agree with him. Change is really, really hard for people. It forces you out of habits. It forces you out of what's comfortable. And it puts you at risk of spilling some milk. And that's okay, because we learn from that, right? So... I would say it's be curious, be honest, and be open. Sure. Wonderful. Well, this has been great. I appreciate both of you taking the time. There's some great kind of insights. And in so thank you for, for taking the time today. No problem. Jeff, good to see you again, man. Thank you. Yeah, Rob. Thanks. And uh, Ramesh, thank you very much for including both of us. Thank you. Please join again for another podcast in the series brought to you by HCAA's Voices of Self-Funding. Please like and share so we can build a community of like-minded people and tell us about topics that we should bring to you next. Please watch your email for updates and on upcoming guests. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar of Zaki Health.